AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior U.S. intelligence officers and those who write about them. Today, we have the return of a very special guest. He is well-known author Jim Bamford. You recall that back in the spring, my good friend and colleague John Kotraki and I did an initial interview with uh, Jim about his new book, Spy Fail. But the book is so content-rich that we decided to do it in two parts. And so we're back today to do part two. John Kotraki is an ideal candidate to be uh, my co-host and the interlocutor for today's interview. He is a retired senior FBI officer. He also spent time at NSC, at DOD, and uh, CIA, and has a career in counterintelligence and counterespionage. And so he's very familiar with many of the cases that Jim Bamford is going to talk about today. John, welcome to AFIO Now. Thanks, Jim. And thanks to Jim Bamford for coming back and sharing your time with us during what I'm sure is a very busy summer for you. Jim, as we discussed earlier, um, there was just way too much fabulous content in your book to cover it all in one session. So so here we are a second time, and I fear, genuinely fear, there is so much content there that we won't get all to all of it here. Uh, but we'll try, and for the listener and our membership who will be dialing in eventually to watch this, uh, I'll just advance the session today by saying, We'll start with the Russians and some current topics that you cover comprehensively in your book, but which are ripped from the front lines or the front pages of, of the newspapers today. And then we'll move on to uh, the Chinese target, which has, again, popped up diplomatically in terms of intelligence, in terms of activities in the South China Sea. And I fear at that point we'll have run out of time. Uh, I'm not going to obligate you to a third session, uh, but I just I don't want to cut either of these topics short before moving on to the other countries you cover in your book to include Iran and Korea. So so just an advance warning for you and for anybody else listening along with us as we proceed through the day. Is that OK? Great. Sounds terrific, uh, John. Yeah. And of course, as we discussed uh, by email before we dialed in here, um, there have been a couple of things off the headlines in the last couple of months, which really beg for, I think, some attention given your command of the subject material, both in your prior works and certainly in Spyfell, which you've most recently published in, in 2023. So with that, um, the two issues I want to address before we get to the content of the chapters in your book are one, the Wagner Group, <clears throat> personal question of mine, uh, and then turn to the June 5th passing of Bob Hansen, uh, with whom I think you had some prior relationship or contact, let's say. Um, and for the sake of making our content immediate and responsive to the headlines of the day and for our membership, we'll cover those and then we'll move on to the rest of Russia as you cover it in your book and then China. And we'll see where we are at the end of the hour or so there, if that's OK with you. Sure. That sounds great. So, as you know, on June 5th, uh, Bob Hansen passed away. Um, and I know from some of your prior work, and I think David Wise actually refers to a conversation he had with you in writing his book about Bob Hansen. I'm just curious as to your impression when he passed away uh, and any reflections you have on your contact with him 
And then I've got a last question for you with regard to the larger issue of U.S. counterintelligence, the FBI's counterespionage program. And from your lights or by your lights, any questions left unanswered with the death, death of Hansen and our inability to interview him anymore? Well, just to give you a little background, um, I met Hansen <clears throat> in the mid-90s, I guess it was, or, or early to mid-90s. I was introduced to him by a friend of mine at the CIA who I'd known for a long time. Um, I had worked on uh, a number of cases. I was with ABC News at the time, and I had uh, broken the Felix Block case for um for ABC News. So I was very familiar with the Felix Block case. And um, so my friend at the CIA said, oh, you ought to meet a friend of mine, uh, Bob Hansen. He works at the FBI. And he was involved in that case, too. So um, uh, we got together. And at the time, I lived on a boat on the uh, Potomac. So we went out for rides occasionally on the boat and we would uh, go to lunch together. So I got to know him fairly well. I'd see him maybe once uh, every three weeks or so and just get together with him. So he was uh, a very uh, uh, sort of different from most FBI agents. He was more into technology, and I think he liked talking to me uh, because I was involved with uh, writing on high-tech uh, intelligence areas with the Puzzle Palace and so forth. So, um, so we got to know each other fairly well. I had absolutely no knowledge whatsoever that he was uh, working for the Russians uh, at the time uh, as, a, as a spy. Uh, it came as a total shock. Uh, <clears throat> one uh, incident that might be uh, interesting to learn about was when I, I had to go to Moscow to interview Viktor Cherkashin, who was head of the intelligence uh, for Russia in, in the United States. He was like the chief of station in Washington. And he had retired, and the Russians allowed me to interview him on camera for ABC. And I told Hanson that, and he got very excited and, and thought, oh, that'd be terrific. Uh, uh, um, you know, can you see me as soon as you come back and tell me all about it? So I said, sure, yeah, no problem. And, uh, and so I did, and, and uh, I didn't realize until afterwards that Victor Cherkashin was the guy that uh, Hanson had had uh, worked for basically. He volunteered to be a spy for uh, Russia through uh, Richard Cherkashin. So it was uh, this strange uh, area that I was uh, dealing in here where I was dealing with somebody I thought was a senior FBI agent who was really a Russian spy. Um, so uh, yeah, that was how I got to know him. That was why I, I pretty much knew him. Um, one regret I have, a, a big regret that I, uh, uh, because of his passing, is the fact that I never did interview him after the um, mm. uh, after he was arrested. Uh, I never really formally interviewed him before he was arrested because he was just a, an FBI contact that I had. Um, and then after he was arrested, he didn't talk to anybody. So I, uh, I never did get a chance to actually interview him or ask him why he did this or why he did that. So, so that's sort of uh, a uh, you know regret, but I can understand where he uh, didn't want to prolong the misery by giving interviews about his uh, spy career. Sure. Uh, well, I ask the question, like I said, off the front pages of of the newspapers, but 
and two things you just said, it's just for me personally, from my past work experience, it's fascinating. So you were introduced to him principally by virtue of his involvement with Felix Block. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, I knew he was fascinating because Felix Block was compromised because of Bob Hansen. Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And, And and so when you discussed, however, tangentially, when you discussed Felix Block with Hansen, did he give any indication of an increased interest or an increased disinterest because of his involvement in, in the block case? Well, obviously, I didn't know about his involvement in the block case at the time I was with him. But, right. yeah, that was the initial thrust of why we got together. Um, uh, so the initial meetings, there was a lot of discussion about Felix Block. And uh, I had actually gone over to uh, Vienna. I was the very first person to actually find Felix Block's girlfriend, uh, Tina, I think her name was. Um, and... and uh, did an on-camera interview for ABC uh, with her. And I thought, you know, it was very fascinating about how they met and he was into uh, S&M and different things like that. So she was very candid in her uh, interview. Um, So, uh, yeah, Hanson got very interested in my knowledge about Felix Block and, and, uh, you know, his girlfriend and the whole work. So, um, and, you know, he talked about it, too, but there wasn't really anything he said that I didn't, you know, n- know. I mean, he didn't go into any particular detail. Um, so, yeah, again, another opportunity missed by not talking to him again was to, to find out more about his, you know, the whole thing about his relationship with uh, uh, Block and so forth. Um, so, yeah, that was a really fascinating time meeting Hansen and then talking to Victor Chikashin in, in Moscow and, and uh, all these things that went on behind the scenes that I really had no knowledge about at the time. Right. And, and if I can, Jim, uh, if I can turn to Victor Chikashin just for a moment. So do you recall the date or you know thereabouts, the date you interviewed Chikashin in Moscow? Well, it was the mid-90s. That's about, as, I, I mean, if I could uh, look it up, but I. I no, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. But I, I, before I, he wrote his book. Yeah, yeah, it was it was right after he retired. They uh, allowed me to do the very first interview with him after he retired, and I'd interviewed other spies over in Russia before. I interviewed uh, one of the uh, people who was uh, uh, a member of the uh, KGB that was involved in the in the. Um, Spy case, the Cambridge spy case, for example. Oh. Uh, so, uh, um, so I've been there a number of times. I've been to Russia, you know, many, many times, and they knew me. They knew my books, and I was with ABC, so they, you know, felt I was a fairly good contact in order to do the interview, you know, because I knew what I was talking about and had a history of writing about intelligence. Right. Right. Uh, well, again, so turning back to Chukashin, then I'll leave it there. But okay. kind of an unanticipated treasure here for me personally. <laughs> um, so presumably if it was in the mid-90s. It's after our arrest of Ames, but before right. our identification and arrest of Hansen. So with that in mind, did you get any sense while you were interviewing Chukashin that perhaps they were trying to steer 
U.S. intelligence and counterintelligence in a different direction by by virtue of your interview of Cherkashin. Because we did notice almost to the day, a year before the arrest of Ames, they make Yuri Shvets available to the Washington Post in Moscow for an interview. And Yuri Shvets goes on to regale all the Western press with notions of how depleted the intelligence corps was here in the United States in the mid 80s. And they were doing nothing but stealing stuff from the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and sending it back as intel. When, in fact, they were running both Hanson and Ames and had just made contact with Howard. So there's a sense that they had sent Schwetz to us for the purpose of running a bit of a journalistically driven deception operation by which we'd kind of give up on Ames because we hadn't identified him yet when he did the interview. So did you get any similar sense when you spoke with Cherkashin? Uh No, and I, I also interviewed uh, uh, Uri Schwetz at one point or another, uh, but uh, I didn't uh, I didn't get that sense. Uh, again, I didn't know all the background of what was going on. When I did get back from uh, from seeing Trakashin and uh, and I got together with Hansen, uh, Hansen was extremely curious about what Trakashin said. And then afterwards, after Hansen was arrested and all that, and I got a chance to think about it again, you know, that I could see that uh, Hansen was trying to uh, pick my brain to see whether Trakashin said anything like, oh, yeah, but we still got spies over there or, you know, the FBI better watch what they're doing or, you know, some kind of a clue, a hint that, uh, you know, when because I talked to him before we actually did the interview on uh, aired it on on television, that he would have some kind of clue that, uh, you know, that Trakashin might be uh, might have said something to give him away. The other thing that I thought was interesting was, you know, why he really wanted to uh, spend time with me. Uh, I mean, after we talked about um, our initial interview, we continued to be, you know, in contact for years and years afterwards. Uh, but I think one, you know, looking at it cynically, one way to do that is that he's in counterintelligence in the FBI. So he knows, you know, who you're looking at in terms of who's a potential spy. But if he becomes a suspect, then uh, he's going to be cut out. He's not going to know that by just reading the traffic and so forth. So if you really want to look at it cynically, he could uh, have me as a contact so that uh, I would be the kind of person that might hear about something like that, that there is somebody within the FBI counterintelligence division that's uh, under investigation that I could have heard from a, another source. Uh, and then it would be logical for me to call up Hansen and say, oh, did you hear about this new person in uh, counterintelligence that they're investigating? And that would serve as a, a warning to him or a, a tip off. Sure. Maybe since I know that there's somebody being investigated in counterintelligence and he doesn't, that maybe he's the uh, he's the target. So, you know, looking at it in a sort of Machiavellian, uh, Jean le Carré sort of way, uh, that uh, uh, that occurred to me. But, you know, it could have been just that he liked talking to me about, you know, um, spies and so forth. Right. Right. Well, that's fascinating. Maybe we can, whether on screen or personally, we can talk about it some more, but we'll follow up after that. 
Thanks, Jim. Let's turn, if we can, again to the front pages, most recently with regard to the war in Ukraine. I I was fascinated uh, and thought of you immediately when I saw, like everybody else did, the headlines with regard to the Wagner Group. And the the first thing I thought of, and I wanted to pick up the phone and call you or send you an email, but I thought I'd, I'd save it for what we're doing here now, is... I'm going to draw on your your NSA experience, which is commanding in the field, both from a straight intelligence standpoint and a journalistic standpoint. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it is inconceivable to me that the Wagner Group has its own organic comsec capability. That that is that, however detached from the Russian military and the Russian, the formal Russian intelligence organs, the Wagner Group is. It doesn't have the ability to organically develop its own secure communications by which it can communicate within its own group and not be overheard by others. I presume, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, that the Kremlin, you know, FAPSI, GR, that that the Russian government is providing the Wagner Group with its communications to include its secure communications. Would I be right in that or would you know? Uh. You know, it's just something that I don't really know. Um, I would assume that, yeah, they are getting a lot of their uh, uh, communications from there. But uh, if he is interested in in uh, having discrete conversations uh, out of hearing of the Kremlin, uh, it's certainly easy enough for him. I mean, they came out how much money he was being <clears throat> given by the Kremlin to go out and buy uh you know, off the shelf uh, uh, communication, secure communication. Right. So it's, you know, you could buy it anywhere and uh, just, you know, use a discrete channel uh, uh, on those to communicate. Um, I mean, the, the Russian military has their hands full with uh, just the war with the Ukraine without trying to listen to every word that comes from uh, Prigozhin or the uh uh, Wagner Group, you know, and they do have their own uh, uh, organization all throughout Africa. So, it, you know, with the amount of uh, listening that the Russian intelligence has to do uh, with their targets, uh, the United States and, and and Europe and NATO and, and Ukraine and so forth, I just wouldn't think that they'd be spending an awful lot of time you know, listening to the uh, the Wagner group uh, very much. Right. Okay, thanks. Um, in the book, which obviously you finished before the war in Ukraine got going in earnest, you, you do make some references to Ukraine and its cyber cap- the, the Russian cyber capability vis-a-vis Ukraine. Yeah. Um, in hindsight, Jim, in, in your opinion, again, given your command of things NSA going back almost 50 years and, and, and the research you did for this book, were we wrong? There was a, a bit of a narrative out there after 2008 that what we were seeing in Georgia was the opening shot in what would become 21st century cyber combat or cyber warfare. And yet, now, after 18 months in Ukraine, we don't be we don't seem to be seeing a lot of cyber based warfare. It's more traditional 20th, if not 19th century, you know, kind of nose to nose combat in an open field. Did we misread the tea leaves in 2008 
or is there a cyber war going on that we're not seeing? Or have we collectively kind of overstated the use of cyber combat and cyber warfare when there's a real kinetic exchange? Is, is that a not-to-be-integrated piece with more traditional warfare and to be conducted separately? Or is there just a piece we're not seeing right now, in your opinion? Um, yeah, well, what I, from what I've read and, and seen so far, yeah, it's exactly the way you were mentioning it. There was a lot of hype over how, uh, you know, how much of a determination that cyber would be in the war because cyber had been hyped for so long. Um, and uh, it turns out it hasn't really played much of a part at all because, uh, as you mentioned, we're, the war is basically trench warfare at this point, and we're going back as opposed to forward in terms of a lot of the technology. The one area that I think is, uh, uh, I mean, when you talk about signals, intelligence, and so forth, there's you know two major components of it, uh, eavesdropping on conversations, uh, communications intelligence, and eavesdropping on, on electronics, which is ELINT. Um, so I think ELINT has played a, a, a much bigger role. That's with all the uh, the drones, for example, that, uh, the enormous use of drones in this warfare. I think that's the, one of the big things by both sides. And then um, the miniaturization of uh, technology so that you could put on a drone a lot of the ELINT capabilities so you know where the radars are and you know where the uh, uh, who's communicating to whom and 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 so there's a lot of uh, um, a, a lot of effort that's being put into um, Eland, uh knowing where all the electronics are knowing how to jam a, a radar uh, those kind of things it that doesn't make a lot of news but when you when you put miniaturization of of Eland together with the drones you're able to get an awful lot of intelligence and also use it for warfare for um, uh, jamming and, and all those kind of things. Okay, thanks. Uh, staying in the Russian lane, if we can, and, and turning and turning to your book um, more explicitly, uh, can we address the issue of Oleg Smolenkov, if we can, for just a bit? Sure. Uh-huh. Because just the whole conduct of the operation with Smolenkov touches on almost everything else you address in the back of the book in terms of U.S. intelligence, U.S. counterintelligence, former U.S. intelligence officials in contact with the U.S. press, the Steele dossier. I mean, there's almost nothing you can't get to in your book through Smolenkov. So, so for our viewership and for me personally, um, in the book, you refer to Smolenkov as having gone to work for Yuri Ushakov, or Ushakov, the, the ambassador here from 98 to 2008. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that was the timeline, right. And was Smolenkov with him the whole time? Um, I'm not sure, but he became a key aide to him uh, here, and that was where I... Uh, uh, just sort of uh, guessed that he was recruited while he was here. Um, so when they both went back to R Russia, he was already a uh, uh, agent in place. Right. So so you beat me to the punch. And it's the question I was going to ask you. It, it would appear as though during their tenure posting here in the United States that he either volunteers or he is recruited 
presumably by the CIA or the FBI. I don't know which or either. Um, I was wondering if you had a sense, because in your book, you do refer to him as as the CIA source. Are you just drawing a logical inference or do we have reason to believe he worked for one versus the other? Yeah, no, I didn't. Uh, I don't. I guess, uh, yeah, I guess just generically, I said the CIA for some reason, because he was dealing, you know, when, once he was overseas, he was dealing with the, the CIA. He was being run by the CIA. So I was just, uh, for lack of confusion, I was just, I just kept using CIA. So he may have been recruited or, or maybe most likely recruited by the FBI uh, while well, in the United States. I, I just don't know, have any knowledge of that. Okay, thanks. And from a personal standpoint, so this question might seem to be fairly arcane, uh, but likely not to a bureau audience. In the book, you also describe uh, the legat, so for our viewership, the legal attache, an FBI agent attached to the embassy in any one of now 80-some countries. So the FBI legat in Rome becomes the handler for steel. Yeah. And flies to London, takes a debriefing from Steele over the uh, the Fourth of July weekend uh, in 2016, and then you say that the legat picks up the phone and doesn't call OIOD, which, which is the International Operations Division at FBI headquarters. That's who I used to report to when I was in Bratislava and Prague. Doesn't call Division Five, the counterintelligence division at FBI headquarters, responsible for, you know, Russian investigations. But he calls the ASAC in New York, which for me just for me was a not a red flag, but it was just it was a curiosity. You're handling a former MI6 six officer. You've got some really intriguing, if not, you know, hot intel, and you pick up the phone and you call. The ASAC in New York. Do you have any sense as to what that connection was and why that's the call he made rather than back to FBI headquarters? Well, um, I think he did it because that's who he was familiar with. He, uh, I, I think he uh, he reported uh, to New York or he worked for New York before he went uh, to Rome. Um, so there, it seemed like there was a connection. It didn't seem like it was... Uh, it, to me, it didn't strike me as being that unusual, but then I don't know the Bureau that well. But it, um, it was just for me a minor point that, that that's who he called. And <clears throat> I had transcripts of the, I think, of a lot of the conversations that took place and so forth. So, um, yeah, the timing of that was very interesting, uh, the whole start of the Russiagate investigation and how that fit into it. Um he had known uh, Steele uh, previously because he had worked on a previous case uh, uh, involving uh, Olympics or something like that, um, some sports case. Um, and so they had known each other. And then uh, Steele called him up and said, I've got something hot and you, we have to talk in person. So he flew up there to New York. And that's when Steele showed him some of the some of the more explosive areas of his dossier. And uh, that's how the whole thing uh, got started. Then, uh, you know, then the agent contacted New York and from New York, they passed it to Washington and so forth. Right. 
Yeah, fabulous. It's just like I said, probably too much inside baseball for most most of our membership and viewership, but for me, fascinating. Um, okay, if we can, let's put the Russians not behind us, but off to the side for a second, and eventually we're going to get back to that as we cover the Chinese target, because in in many of your chapters, you align. Russian cyber and or SIGIN capability along with this extraordinary emerging cyber and SIGIN capability on the part of the Chinese. So, but let me turn to China principally now, and then we'll bring the Russian piece in from the side if we have time at the end. As we said in the first session back in April, um, you tell your reader that this really covers the period, your book, voluminously covers only the period from roughly 2016 to where we are now. But in fact, as we said during the first session, in a number of ways, you take the reader fabulously back to just real traditional 30, 40, and 50-year-old elements of counterintelligence and intelligence with the Chinese, with the Russians, with the Israelis, as we discussed the first time. And so I was fascinated by your coverage of uh, Jerry Chin or Jerry Lee and the Ma brothers. And for many, especially in the contemporary press, there is this sense of treating the Chinese threat by intelligence and counterintelligence as something fairly recent and emerging. But in fact, the fabulous chapters you add kind of complete the bookend starting really with the second, the joint communique, the second communique back in January of 79, and then coming out through Plainsman, Tiger Trap, Parlor Maid, Larry Wutai Chin, Royal Tourist, the 95 walk-in with Kindred Spirit and Sago Palm, and then finally Poetic Fit and Rich Foliage, you know, the J.J. Smith and, and Katrina case, starting the summer 2000 and concluding in 2004. And you pick it up really with uh, GMAC uh, and then the Ma brothers. Um, I don't think you mentioned Steve Liu, but also of L3, uh, you know, of, of GMAC origin. So if you could for the reader and perhaps the viewer that hasn't gotten to the book yet, can you provide the bookend from my experience with the China program up through 2004? Can you for the reader and the viewer now fill in the the human slash counterintelligence piece with regard to Chinese intelligence penetrating, whether it's the FBI or the CIA, uh, in the first part of the 21st century from 2004 forward? Sure, yeah. Uh, just a little anecdote to uh, go back a little bit in history. It was uh, actually the same person that created the uh, uh, Chinese signals intelligence capability, their uh, uh, eavesdropping, code-breaking organization is the same person that uh, developed uh, uh, the NSA, basically. Uh, Herbert O. Yardley. Herbert O. Yardley was a code-breaker during World War One, and then he became in charge of the first civilian code-breaking organization in the United States uh, called the Black Chamber in 1920, and that eventually became the NSA. Um, it was closed down in, in uh, uh, the end of the 1920s, and um, Yardley was out of work, and the Canadians asked him to come up to build 
basically an NSA for uh, for Canada, which he did. And then he was approached by the Chinese to secretly come to China and develop a uh, an NSA for China, which he did. So uh, all these uh, have the same same father, pretty much. Yeah, that was a fascinating glimpse. I, I, I teach Yardley and Friedman and the Friedmans in a class I teach at, at IWP. And, and the Yardley piece in your book was fascinating. Of course, he got himself in trouble with the U.S. government for publishing some of his works based on his work against the Japanese. So so his involvement in East Asia is actually crosses a couple of borders um, and probably ethical boundaries uh, for which he got himself in a little bit of trouble. So. I have yeah, no yeah. doubt that his relationship with the Chinese was something he was incentivized to keep secret after the problems he got. Yeah, the way, uh, yeah, I played a little role in that. Uh, I interviewed uh, Edna Yardley, uh, Herbert Yardley's wife, um, who was actually technically the first employee of the NSA. Uh, she was the first employee that Herbert Yardley hired for the Black Chamber. Uh, anyway, during the interview, I was asking her about the uh, his time in China, and she uh, uh got up and then went out of the room and came back and she had this thick manuscript that I thought, wow, what's that? And she said, well, you know, he, his time in China, he wrote a book about it, but he was always afraid to get it published. And so uh, she gave it to me and I gave it to my publisher, Hope Mifflin. And uh, so we, Hope Mifflin bought the rights to the book from her and uh, published it. It's, it's called The Chinese Black Chamber. And I wrote a foreword to it. So any any viewer who's interested in that aspect of of the early days of uh, of developing um, the Chinese Black Chamber, the book is out there if they want to take a look at it. Well, so, that's fascinating. I'll make I'll make a point of ensuring that when we post this interview on our AFIO site that we give a link for our members and viewers to go to that book and for me personally. So, yeah, that's that's tremendous. Thank you. Yeah. And, and to bring it further forward, uh, the uh, you mentioned Larry Wu Tai Chin. Um, he was uh, he was employed by the CIA's Foreign Intelligence Broadcast Service, and he was one of the uh, spies during the 1990s that was uh, arrested. And it was very interesting because uh, I have sort of a connection to that. And that's the uh, he worked for like 30 years for the CIA and and uh, Fibis, uh, and he was, uh, you know, all that time sending material back and forth to China. And he was getting paid for it, and and all that it went on for a very long time. And then he retired from the uh, F, uh, from the CIA and Fibis, uh, but he wanted to keep that money coming because he, uh, you know, I think he was getting used to it. Uh, but he wasn't working in the intelligence community anymore, so he bought a copy of my first book, The Puzzle Palace. And I guess he read it very thoroughly. And then he wrote a report to uh, to China, uh, to his uh, handlers in China, saying he'd actually gone to work for the NSA, uh, which he hadn't. And he made up all this stuff that he was uh, telling them about what was going on at the, at the NSA that he just got from my book. So uh, uh, he unfortunately, he committed suicide in, uh, in his jail cell. Um, Right. Uh, I had thought about suing him for copyright infringement there, <laughs> which had been a fairly unusual case. So that was Larry Wu Tai Chi, one of the early uh, 
people arrested. Uh, uh, what I get into is much later on, um, heavily. Other people have written, uh, David uh, Wise, for example, wrote a book um, on, uh, a, a thick book on, on uh, Chinese espionage. So what I got into largely was the um, area that hadn't really been written about very much, was, which was the... Uh, uh, Wu brothers, um, they, uh, just to give a little background, um, Alex and David Wu uh, grew up in in, uh, in China, and then they moved to Hong Kong, and uh, David uh, got a job with the CIA, he became a uh, CIA employee, an uh, uh, actual uh, agent, clandestine agent. Uh, for the CIA, and then he uh, he left, and then his brother uh, joined the, or his brother uh, joined the CIA, and then he also left, and then they um, got back together. They went to China, and uh, while they were there, they actually got recruited by Chinese intelligence to become uh, become spies. David. Uh, uh, went back to California. Well, they both went back to California, but then uh, the job that they wanted Alex to do was to infiltrate the FBI. So he became a FBI mole uh, in 2004. And he was very successful. They put him in, uh, the FBI put him in um, Hawaii as a translator. And he had access to a huge amount of information on what was going on, both the CIA and the uh, FBI in China. So for years, he was uh, in in a key position in Honolulu, the FBI office. And what, what made this so crazy is the fact that unlike with Hansen or whatever, where Hansen would fill up a garbage bag full of documents and put it under a tree or whatever, um, and then, you know, a traditional dead drop um, with uh, Ma, Alex Ma, he would actually take the documents, put them in his briefcase or take flash drives or whatever and um, fly to the target country, fly to China and fly to uh, Shanghai, meet with his contacts. They put him up in a hotel. He'd be debriefed and then he'd be paid the, the money uh, or Sometimes, I guess, at one point he got some very expensive golf clubs, and then he'd fly back to uh, Honolulu and, uh, you know, go back to work in the FBI. So that went on for years and years. So this is, you know, it was the organization that was looking for spies in China. And here they had a guy there that was basically commuting back and forth. At one point, he, he couldn't go, so he gave a, the laptop to his wife to take to, uh, right. to China to give to his handlers. And uh, so... That coincided around the same time. There were a lot of people, a lot of uh, agents, uh, CIA agents being killed or uh, uh, not Americans, but uh, Chinese recruited Chinese agents being killed, the whole networks going down. And, and so, you know, that was perhaps one of the reasons that that was taking place was because all this information was going to the Chinese for, for years. It could be for a decade. I'm not sure how long it lasted, but it lasted. It wasn't even arrested until uh, 2020. Um, so, and, you know, he went to work for the Bureau in 2004. So that's a lot of time to, to have a, uh, a mole in there. And what I also thought was fascinating was that uh, 
the the timing of that it, the timing was right around the same time that the the bureau had uh, discovered that Hansen was a spy so they uh, uh, went into this overdrive of uh, trying to root out spies in the in the FBI and and in increase security and it was right at that same time that the uh, Chinese hired uh, uh, Alex Ma to be a, a spy in the FBI. Yeah, and, and, and back to Ma, uh, Jim. So my sense from your book is that the Ma brothers, so David, for the reader, for the, for the viewer here, so David Ma is the older of the two, right? It's David Ma, and then he begets Alex Ma, both working for Chinese intelligence, but also both working for U.S. intelligence, and it looks to me they're about 20 years apart in, in age, if that's right. Do I have that right? Yeah, there were quite, uh, yeah, there was a big age difference between them. Yeah, exactly. Is it your sense that they were dispatched for the purpose of, of, and tasked for the purpose of penetrating U.S. intelligence or recruited after the fact? And do you have a sense of the timeline, the earliest first contact for either or both of them. And, and I'm asking for a reason. We'll get to that in a second as it ties into the investigations we did during the 90s, particularly with regard to Parlor Maid or, or Katrina. And then the 95 walk-in, which originally focused through the Kindred Spirit investigation on a researcher out at Los Alamos, but which we eventually closed out without a satisfactory conclusion and to the best of my knowledge, remains unresolved to this day. So if you could, reaching back through your, you know, your mental research notes, when did the Ma brothers get recruited and or tasked to come into U.S. intelligence? Well, it was uh, 2001. It was a very interesting time because uh, uh, it was such a major loss of American intelligence right at that same period, because uh, right at that, I think it was the same week, uh, the uh, the U.S. lost the e, uh, EP-3, the um, uh, NSA spy plane. I write a chapter about that in my book also. Uh, the NSA had this uh, uh, plane that we were flying uh, back and forth op office uh, off the Chinese coast, uh, picking up eavesdropping or eavesdropping on the Chinese uh, communications and picking up signals, radar signals and so forth. And uh, it was a very dangerous mission because the Chinese were getting very angry and they were sending uh, fighters up, getting very, very close, 10 feet away from the uh, from the planes to harass them. So the um, uh, there was an incident where one of the Chinese fighters collided with the uh, uh, EP-3, and the EP-3 almost crashed into the ocean. The Chinese fighter did, and he died. But the EP-3 managed to get, regain control, and they landed on uh, Hainan Island, made emergency landing there. So uh, this was a, a, an enormous boon for the Chinese. They had uh, an entire plane full of NSA's uh, most secret information, including all the targeting information that they had on on China um, is probably the biggest loss of U.S. intelligence in, in U.S. history. Um, an entire plane full of uh, of uh, not only hardware but software and codes and everything else. 
Um, and that same week, uh, that's when they were able to recruit uh, the Ma brothers. Um, so uh, Alex and David Ma met secretly with Chinese intelligence, uh, the MSS, and, and they um, re basically were recruited. Um, I'm not too sure what happened right after that. They both went back to, to California. I think they wanted to, they wanted, uh, uh, well, they wanted them both to, to work for them and they both agreed to, they were paid $50,000 after that meeting. Um, but it wasn't until 2004 that, uh, that Alex Ma actually went to work for the FBI. He tried to get a job first as an agent because, uh, you know, he probably thought that that would be the, the better job to be a spy, but he was too old for that. So they made him a translator instead. And actually that might've been even a better job because then he saw all the intercepts and everything that, uh, you know, if he was an agent, he probably would have worked on one case and just one case or, or whatever. But being a translator, he had access to all the cases. Uh, and uh, so it was an ideal position for him to be in. And David in California had a lesser role, but uh, his role was basically looking for potential or possible informants, people who have been cooperating with the Chinese government. And so he opened a, a, a couple of different businesses in Southern California, and he was able to pass on to the Chinese the names of people who he thought might be uh, uh, working secretly for the U.S. government to spy on China, informants and that kind of thing. So they were both working together um, for the Chinese government for a very long period of time. Right. Uh, if we could, let's let's turn our attention to Alex Ma yet again. So he's working as a translator for the FBI office in Honolulu in 2004. And though not addressed specifically in your book, at the same time, a case we identified uh, as a product of our kind of top to bottom scrub when we were looking at the Kindred Spirit case, and then the Poetic Fit Rich Foliage case, which is the JJ and, and Katrina case, um, is the case of Ron Monteperto, who had been a DIA analyst in the 80s. He'd come across everybody's radar in the 80s through the 90s. For one reason or another, the case doesn't get fully exploited. He finds his way onto PACOM staff out in Honolulu at the beginning of the 21st century. And so... In 2004, the FBI office in Honolulu is investigating Ron Monteperto, who, who is in jail to this day. Did you get any sense at all that the Chinese were aware that we were looking at Monteperto? And did you get any sense at all that Alex Ma, by virtue of his support to counterintelligence operations of the FBI in Honolulu, had any sense of the Monteperto case or did the Chinese more aggressively perhaps task him against the counterintelligence or counterespionage investigation directed against Monteperto in Honolulu? Well, I'm sure that would have been, uh, uh, depending on the timing, and the timing sounds perfectly uh, fit for, for uh, Ma to have knowledge about it. And uh, Ma had, you know, regular communications with the Chinese. It wasn't uh, leaving a dead drop someplace. I mean, he was just communicating with his uh, his uh, cell phone uh, back and forth, uh, uh, text messages and so forth. Matter of fact, when he, uh, at one point, he um, 
he just came back from Shanghai after doing a drop there. And uh, that same day, he sent uh, uh, emailed some some more secret information to the Chinese. So he was in regular communication with them. So if the Chinese were interested uh, in, uh, uh, I'm sorry, how do you pronounce his name? Monta Monteperto. Uh, Monteperto. Yeah, Ron, Ron, Ron Monteperto, yeah. Okay, Ron Monteperto. So if the uh, Chinese were interested in Monteperto, uh, then um, all they would have had to do was to tell uh, Ma to, you know, find out whatever he can find out about it. And uh, again, he was never suspected in the in the um, bureau office out there. So he could have had access to anything. Um, right. And when they found... Uh, when they found that he had been going back and forth to China, uh, he was taking everything that didn't have to do with his job. I mean, his job was a translator, but he had took uh, information dealt with nuclear weapons and all kinds of other information. So uh, so he had access to a great deal. So I wouldn't be surprised. I didn't have any or I don't have any uh, independent knowledge of what he uh, did in that case. But certainly the Chinese, given the timing, um, uh, would have uh, tasked them to find out whatever they can uh, on that uh, on that case. Right, right, yeah, fabulous. Just really intriguing. And w- with one question to stitch it up, we'll leave the mob brothers behind. But boy, you really it's been a fabulous operational tale with regard to the reactivation or the the false flag approach to Ma. Where they where they use a tape showing him meeting, and you leave it for the reader to decide how is it the FBI and running a false flag in approaching Ma? How is it they came about this tape? And you don't quite tell the reader what how you feel about that. But do you have any sense of where the U.S. government came upon this tape? Well, I don't. I would I would have put it in the book if I did. But so I I don't. It's one of those mysteries that uh, is very intriguing. Um, yeah, I mean, if I had to guess, uh, what I would think is that uh, um, the Chinese also, uh, uh, or the Chinese filmed the uh, that meeting um, because it's so sensitive, and then at some point uh, the uh, uh, FBI or CIA or whoever uh, managed to get a defector, uh, and the defector is one of his ways to ingratiate himself with the U.S. intelligence, brought material out with him. And among the material was this uh, interview with with uh, with Ma or the Ma brothers uh, that was done by the MSS, the Chinese intelligence back in 2001. Uh, so uh, that's happened before. I mean, that's happened with the Russians where that's basically how we found out about Hansen was by a defector coming out with information that that led to uh, Hansen's arrest. Uh, they had a garbage bag that the Russians actually kept, uh, which had contained material that uh, Hansen had taken out. And so the defector came to the U.S., he brought the actual garbage bag with him, and they took Hansen's fingerprints off it. Uh, that's how they, that's the only way they were able to find out it was Hansen. So when defectors come out, as I'm sure you know, uh, they uh, bring with them uh, material because they're not 
very valuable if they just come out verbally and say this and that, because he could be lying, they could be making things up. But if they bring actual documents or videos, as this might have been, um, um, it just makes their case more valuable. Yeah, exactly. Um, I promise to leave the Mob Brothers behind, and we will. But as you said earlier, on a number of occasions, the Mob Brothers would actually fly back to the mainland and meet face-to-face -face with their MSS handlers. And in doing so, you put into play Shanghai and Hong Kong, uh, both of which play prominent roles not only in your book, but by my experience going all the way back to 1980. Um, do you have a sense of to what degree the British involvement, of course, obviously in Hong Kong, even after 97, to what degree the British hand plays at all in either enhancing or in some cases perhaps confusing U.S. intelligence involvement with the Chinese or U.S. counterintelligence operations and investigations against the Chinese is the British play in East Asia and principally through Hong Kong a net positive for us or is it a net confusing for us in the same way the Russians would use, you know, quote unquote, the special relationship between the Americans and the Brits to confuse us as to the provenance of a particular piece of information or the provenance of a particular compromise. Did you get any sense of that at all? And to what degree the Brits, particularly MI6, are still playing through Hong Kong with the Chinese? Uh, I'm not sure. I was actually over there uh, during the handover. Uh, I was uh, over there on another spy case, in essence, uh, for ABC. I was looking into the uh, uh, the people that were identified in the Clinton cases, uh, the Clinton campaign as giving money to uh, to the Clinton campaign. So I went over to China to try to find them. This is uh, Hanson Wong, Johnny Chung connection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I, I was able to interview a couple of those people over there. I was able to find them and interview them. Um, so uh, while I was over there, I spent a lot of time in Macau and Hong Kong and, and China. And I was, you know, suspecting that probably the, the Brits, uh, before they pulled out, they they left a, a number of things there where they could pick up signals, uh, you know, antennas hidden uh, in, in as tree branches or something like that, um, uh, ways to eavesdrop on the Chinese uh, after they took over Hong Kong, um, which, you know, would have been feasible. I don't have any knowledge that they did that, but uh, I did, while I was in Hong Kong, I did see the huge listening post. Uh, I've been to Hong Kong numerous times. And I've seen their huge listening posts they had there. And it was a key uh, facility for the Five Eyes, being, you know, a Brit. Uh, the British uh, uh, had a huge eavesdropping capability on China. So it seems to me that they would have, uh, with all the foreknowledge of what was going to happen in a handover, they would have uh, uh, put some signals, intelligence capabilities, hidden someplace to eavesdrop on what was taking place, the signals and the going on in the um, in the. Uh, you know, between Hong Kong and the mainland and so forth. Right, right. Okay, Jim, let, let's, if we can, to close out our hour or so, let's turn to the issue in your book of, for lack of a better thumbnail, 61398, you know, the Chinese cyber unit, 
Um, but but only as a thumbnail for a much, much larger story. So as I'm sure you're aware, um, Xi Jinping, since 2017, has subjected the whole of the Chinese national security framework, not just intelligence and not just the military, but really the, the culture that underlies all that to a substantial series of changes by which they would get out of these kind of fiefdom-like um, uh, control of the military and the intel and are driving it to a more territorial or regional, not not unlike the Western model with NORTHCOM and PACOM and CENTCOM. And that has rippled over the last six years throughout the whole of the Chinese national security framework. Is it your sense that as it affects their SIGINT and cyber capability, is it is it their need or their intention to be dominant in the cyber and SIGINT world that's driving this? Or is it their more conventional military objectives that's driving this? Or, or in fact, are the two elements separate from each other? As I'm, I'm trying to take the fabulous detail you provide with regard to their SIGINT and cyber capability um, and map it against the larger issue of reform in the Chinese military and national security framework. Do you have any sense of that at all for our, for our viewer? Well, they, uh, yeah, the Chinese have, <clears throat> I, I think originally they were, uh, you know, back up. Uh, nothing happened really until uh, Nixon went there and then uh, in the early seventies. And then since then they've been on this huge rush to try to modernize. And, and uh, now they're basically, uh, you know, they have, uh, space stations. They they're planning to put somebody on the moon and all this stuff. They've been really rushing ahead technologically. Um, they hadn't really paid too much attention on the uh, uh, on SIGINT in the past. Uh, they didn't really have too much of a uh, uh, focus on that. And then they started building a, a lot of ground stations in China. And China is a great place to. Uh, to eavesdrop from because they uh, are fairly close to Europe on one end, and then they, uh, you know, close to Southeast Asia and Asia. So there's a, a lot of areas that they could eavesdrop with. And what they've been doing lately is uh, uh, trying to do a lot of uh, eavesdropping on satellites, uh, satellite eavesdropping. And so they uh, just recently, uh, well, I guess 2019, uh, they started building uh, facilities in Cuba. In order to eavesdrop on all the satellites around the world, uh, you need uh, to have eavesdropping capabilities in basically three quadrants, um, like we have it in, uh, in in the U.S. in Colorado, uh, in Aurora, Colorado, and then Menwith Hill uh, Station in England, and and then in in Japan, uh, listening post. So. So they're trying to do that. So they've they've got that area to cover the Pacific with uh, with China itself, and then they're uh, they're building the, this facility uh, on Grand Cocos Island off India uh, to capture everything over the Indian Ocean. That's very key because then you're getting all the um, uh, Africa communications and all the a lot of the Asian communications. So they're building that facility, and now they are they're pretty much taking over where the Russians left off with uh, in uh, you know Lourdes area of uh, Cuba. I'm not sure exactly where their facility is, but uh, 
you know, once they've got that, then they're doing an awful lot of uh, technical intelligence that they really hadn't been doing before. Right. And and you go into great detail with regard to, and the viewer will forgive us for this, but S-E-A-M-E-W-E-3, <laughs> describing the, the transoceanic cable that comes out of the water at Chungming Island. Am I correct in that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Th- the public has a very, you know, um, wrong misperception of how communications are transmitted because of the, uh, the this euphemistic expression uh, in the cloud. Right. I mean, information is in clouds or in fiber optic cables that run under the sea and under the ground. So um, the world's wrapped in these cables, and that's how all those communications take place. They've decreased the amount of information goes up to satellites and increased it by undersea cables. So getting access to those cables are critical. Um, and uh, they become vulnerable. Uh, they're very hard to tap under the sea. So usually there's agreements made, secret agreements with cable companies to tap at the what they call the cable head, where the cable actually comes into land. Uh, but occasionally these, these uh, cables actually do surface for a brief millisecond, and that's what happens off the coast of uh, off the coast of China up near Shanghai, the the island. Uh, I forgot the name of it. You just mentioned it there, Chongming, right? Uh, something like that. Yeah, uh, it's this island off of China. Anyway, the so the Chinese have built the uh, uh, a listening post there, and so the cables actually physically come out of the water, and they cross this fairly small island. And uh, when they cross the island, they, the Chinese intelligence has access to it. And they have software that does deep dive uh, uh, inspection of the, um, of the cables with keywords and all that. So it, it's this really high tech world of, uh, of eavesdropping and the Chinese are very good at it. Uh, they've got a number of these listening posts uh, in, in areas that, uh, are serviced by a lot of the undersea cables, um, like the cable you mentioned. Uh, 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 there, there are cables that continually go around the world. Uh, I mean, they just and and so if you're able to pick up, get access to the cable, you're able to get access to information that may be from Europe or the United States or anywhere. So, so that's where they're going uh, very heavily. They're very going. Uh, they're going very heavily into the. Uh, technical intelligence uh, capability and being very high tech and having a fair amount of money and now having access to uh, lots of parts of the world that will give them access to signals. Uh, you know, they're doing very well. Right. And, and just one point of professional privilege here. Uh, lest our, any of our viewers think this is something new and um, and novel, this is not at all unlike the Zimmerman telegram from 1917 because the Western Union cable came out of the water. The transatlantic cable came out of the water in the UK, and that's where room 40 of the Admiralty then in MI6 tapped into Western Union cable and they they break out the Zimmerman telegram. So <laughs> as new as a lot of this stuff is, in some cases, it's over 100 years old, at least in concept or theory. So it, it was a fascinating story. Uh, and as you say, it, it, it tends to demystify the whole 
kind of euphemistic use of the term cloud and, and reduces it to a, you know, just a brute force assault on data coming across the transoceanic floors tens of thousands of feet below the surface. So just a fascinating story. Also in that same chapter, Jim, you described the the eight transoceanic cables of which this SEAMEWE3 was one. Can you give us or me a sense? Are those eight cables eight of eight? Are they eight of 40? Does this represent a substantial part of the around the world communications and, and data transmission? Or is it only a smaller part? I just I had no sense of, of the of the context for these eight cables you described. Oh, it's it's just a small part. Uh, there's there. Uh, I forgot the numbers, but there are enormous numbers of cables all over the world and they're constantly being built. Um, so. Uh, the, and the Chinese don't have a monopoly on it. We do the same thing. Uh, we use drop-on cables all the time, uh, both through uh, uh, agreements with American telecom companies and with uh, our friendly uh, telecom companies. So cable tapping is a, a universal um, activity for at least high-tech uh, countries. So it, it's... Those cables, those eight cables, those are just uh, a few. There's other cables that actually go to another part of China that I mentioned in the book, and they're able to get access to those cables also. So, um, so that you know, the public doesn't really have much of a knowledge of how vulnerable all this communications is, but it is very vulnerable, and it's it's not very hard to find. Uh, when I I, I did a program uh, for PBS uh, for. Uh, Nova on on the technology of cables and and tapping cables and how it how it works um, and from public documents you can see where the cables come into the United States we actually found the this uh, manhole cover uh, in California uh, below which almost all the cables came into uh, California from uh, from the Far East so. Um, Cables are, are are fascinating. It's a sort of boring topic to some degree, but cables are where uh, you're going to get an awful lot of intelligence if you're able to tap into them. Absolutely, and and, and certainly not boring. I, I suspect for our audience here, um, Jim. If we could, then staying with the Chinese for the moment and drawing on your your NSA experience and, and your three three of your prior publications, your your prior books. Prior to SIGINT 21, prior to 1999, um, as you explained in your book and as our experience shows, what the NSA collected was much larger than what NSA was actually able to exploit. That is, collected traffic versus fully broken out, translated and disseminated traffic had a, a fairly substantial delta there. They collected far more than they were able to exploit. Whether it's a matter of, of Chinese operations only, or is it just a function of systems and, and data systems, cyber in the 21st century, do you get a sense of to what degree the Chinese, and for that matter, the Russians, are able to exploit their collection for usable, actionable intelligence? Or is it still like the old NSA model where you know, used is better than the new, and they collect a lot more than they're able to, to exploit in the moment because of cryptography and, and security measures. Do you have any sense of that at all? 
Well, in, in a sense, yeah, the uh, the Chinese are, are uh, at least as good, if not better, than the United States at, at the exploitation of the uh, communications because a lot of that all depends on uh, computer capability. Uh, the uh, And now with the use of artificial intelligence, for example. Um, so the, the more high-tech you are, the more... Uh, uh, capable you are to exploit the the data you're bringing in. Um, that was the problem with the United States. We were bringing in tons and tons of material, but we didn't have the translators and so forth to uh, uh, to listen to it or to analyze it. And that's how one of the reasons we had 9-11, for example. So, um, so, the, so there's a... a, a a connection between how much uh, you bring in and how much technology you have. So if you're bringing in a lot of material, you have to have a lot of high tech in order to go through it. Uh, the United States has built, uh, uh, well, the United States has been in competition with China from the very beginning for supercomputers. And that's what we, that's how we did it originally with uh, with World War II, was uh, uh, using uh, the first supercomputers basically to to uh, break uh, the Japanese and uh, and uh, uh, German codes, for example. So there's a, uh, a relationship and China has been developing quantum uh, computing very uh, capably. Uh, I think they're ahead of the United States in quantum at this point. And, um, and so there's that race, the race between uh, bringing in all this information and then having the ability to uh, use quantum or artificial intelligence or whatever to be able to sift through it and find out what you're, you know, it doesn't make any good. It doesn't do any good if you can't translate it and you can't uh, understand it. So, so that's the, the key link to the whole thing. Right. Uh, Jim, as I said, when we started, I, I could go hours, hours more with you on all these topics, but we're running up against the deadline here, as you know. Uh, so let me close out with a two-part stitch-it-all-together question for you that, that draws heavily on, on spy fail and also on your prior experience over the last half century, 50 years, with regard to things SIGINT. Um, as you're aware, for the first 50 years or so of its existence, NSA was one of the nine combat support agencies, that is, of support to the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, and Marine Corps, but it was a combat support element, not a combat element in and of itself, and that all changes, obviously. In 2010, when we dual hat uh, the Dernza, director of NSA, then as command commander, U.S. Cybercom. So drawing on your extensive detail with regard to the Russians, and here again with the Chinese, do you see the Russians and the Chinese turning to a similar model, wherein they are making their cyber a separate combat domain, or are they mapping back to the more, for us, our older model of subordinating cyber to the more traditional 20th century elements of military might and power, that is cyber support to the air forces, cyber support to the naval forces, cyber support to the land forces, or are they following the U.S. model and having 
a whole designated domain for for cyber combat in the 21st century? Well, I think uh, they're they're pretty much following the the U.S. model because the the two elements, uh, cyber attack and cyber espionage, are so closely linked. I mean, the whole idea is you've got to break into the system using a zero, uh, just find ways to break into the, the the system you're going after with a. Uh, um, cyber attack of some sort you you've got to get into the system so once you've gotten into the system you could use it for either eavesdropping or attack you could plant cyber uh, weapons in there or whatever to destroy the uh, computer systems and, and the uh, communication systems or uh, or just have the information be transmitted back so cyber command and and nsa are, are sort of intertwined because they basically do the same thing uh the end result might be different um but you need a uh the same kind of people you you need to to do that and and the chinese and the russians i think are pretty much the same the chinese keep their uh, or the russians keep all their um SIGIN together in the GRU largely. There's a unit in the GRU and they're, they separate the eavesdropping from the, um, from the attack and, and also information warfare. Uh, but they, they keep most of it within the, the GRU, the military intelligence. And the Chinese, uh, I, from what I've been able to see, are pretty much doing the same thing. They've got a very a big, powerful SIGIN organization now, and uh, it it comes under the military, but uh, they, uh, you know, just like NSA uh, comes under the the Pentagon. So, so the the models are pretty much the same. Um, so the key thing is uh, finding ways to get into systems, uh, zero day exploits, for example, um, and then uh, penetrating the system, and then either extracting information secretly to eavesdrop on what's going on or planning malware or, or, or you know, some kind of a uh, attack software to uh, destroy the system. And um, um, it's such so high tech and such uh, use of such technology that it's always, always usually kept within the same organization. So NSA, the, the, decision as to whether to divide uh, the hats between two separate organizations or keep it under the same organization. So they've got sort of a hybrid organization right now. Great. And again, with my apologies, Jim, as I said, I could go on. I, I just I strongly encourage our viewership and our membership to buy the book. It's a it's a fascinating read. Uh, we or I haven't done it justice here by covering all the fascinating threads that, that you weave throughout this, this fabric of, of SIGINT in the 21st century and its involvement with humans and counterintelligence. And, and as we come up on the 2024 election cycle, a lot of what you write to with regard to the 2016 election cycle is going to be relevant again, I suspect. So, so I strongly encourage our viewers and members to buy the book and read the book. Uh, and perhaps if not, Again, on camera, you and I can get together and discuss this uh, somewhat further when we all get back from hopefully a, a safe and, and fun summer, if that's okay with you. 
Yeah, it'd be terrific. Yeah, it'd be great. And I really appreciate your having me on. Yeah, I'm always the guy on the outside trying to look in. And uh, I always admire you people for being on the inside, uh, since that's the place where all the action's happening. And I've got to uh, sort of live my life vicariously through uh, through your actions. So I really appreciate uh, uh, what you do and, and uh, try to explain it to, to readers. And uh, so thanks very much for having me on your show because I admire, like I've said before, I've been on a member for 40 years now. So uh, I've, I've gotten to know a lot of your, your members and I really appreciate being on your show. Well, it, well, it was a privilege. And with that, I'll Jim Hughes, I'll turn it back to our president. But thanks again, Jim Bamford. Uh, and we'll see our members in our next AFIO Now presentation. Great. Thanks, John. And thanks, Jim. Well, the book is called Spy Fail. It is a treasure trove of case histories on both counterintelligence and counterespionage. I really want to thank uh, John Kutraki and Jim Bamford for a fascinating conversation. Mm -hmm.